The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello. <laughs> I'd like to introduce our speaker, <laughs> Tony Bernhard. Tony Bernard fell ill on a trip to Paris in 2001 with what doctors initially diagnosed as an acute viral infection. She has not recovered. In 1982, she received a JD from the School of Law at the University of California, Davis, and immediately joined the faculty where she stayed until chronic illness forced her to retire. During her 22 years on the faculty, she served for six years as Dean of Students. In 1992, she began to study and practice Buddhism. Before becoming ill, she attended many meditation retreats and led a meditation group in Davis with her husband. She lives in Davis with her husband, Tony, and their Labrador, Scout. <laughs> Tony can be found online at www.howtobesick.com. Welcome back to IMC, Tony. Thank you, Martha. And thank you for switching out the dogs. (laughs) Um, Well, hi, everybody. This is, um, it's wonderful to be here. It's uh, a little bit surreal because I'm mostly housebound. And um, I, this is my third trip here be, uh, because it's my third book. And I re- really like to come to IMC because uh, Gil was one of my first teachers. And uh, before I got sick, I used to go on a yearly retreat at Vajrapani with he and Mary Orr and John Travis, and I I actually don't think they use Vajrapani anymore, but maybe the retreat is still going. So it's uh, special for me to be able to see him, and I appreciate all of you staying. Thanks. Um, Any of you who were here five years ago when my first book came out may remember my saying that um, I was sick but I don't, but he didn't know why. And it's five years later, and I can make that same statement. I continue to be sick, and neither I nor the doctors really know why. Um, In short, I feel as if I have the flu. I call it the flu without the fever. I guess that's something to be thankful for. I don't have the acute symptoms like sore throat and cough and fever, but I feel the way, uh, think about the last time you had the flu, that feeling of severe jet lag, uh, lack of energy. I'm about to get my adrenaline hit here, which will help me. Um, And... uh, uh, it, that kind of wired but tired feeling. Um, it's, I'm not tired in the sense that I, I, won't, I won't doze off on you. <laughs> um, it's a kind of sickly uh, wired and tired. Um, and uh, the consensus among the doctors I've seen is that I have an immune system 
disorder of some kind that was set off by this viral infection that I caught uh, when my husband and I, some of you may know my husband, his name is also Tony. Um, when Tony and I uh, took a, a trip to Paris, I got sick. And uh, in short, I never got better. And that was May of 2001. So about 14 and a half years ago. And uh, when this first happened, and I found myself in bed instead of in the classroom at the law school where I'd been teaching for uh, all, about almost 20 years, I was horribly confused, uh, angry, and embarrassed. I, you know, everyone gets sick, but then you get better. And I expected myself to get better, and so did the people around me, my colleagues at the law school. Yeah. That would gone, are you better yet? Are you better yet? Uh, and some people get tired of asking and uh, exit from your life, but that's okay. Um, it was very, very hard. And I would go to sleep at night and literally order myself to wake up feeling the way I'd felt before I got sick. Uh, but that didn't work. <laughs> and one day inspired by the Buddhist teachings. At that point, I'd been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years. So now I can say almost 25. Uh, I decided to see if his, the Buddhist teachings could help me learn how to be sick. And um, I began to write what I thought of as a manual for myself. Um, and I, I shared it with a couple people who I met, who I met online, who were uh, also chronically ill, and they said, uh, "There's a book there." And uh, really, that hadn't occurred to me. And so I, I took the big step of showing the manuscript to Sylvia Borstein, who I'd known for many years, and who I'm sure some of you know. And she loved it and helped me find a publisher. And that was how, much to my surprise, uh, I became a published author. And um, then in 2013, so that was 2010, 2013 Wisdom, my publisher, published a second book, uh, this book called How to Wake Up, which offers my interpretation of the Buddha's path to awakening. A, a modest undertaking. But, you know, I'm in bed all day. I might as well. <laughs> so, and at that point I thought, okay, I'm through writing books because I've written about the two things that occupy my consciousness most of the day, being sick and the Buddha's teachings. But uh, as it turned out, I had one more book to go. And uh, uh, I had more to say about chronic illness, mostly because of all the people who'd written to me after my first book came out, How to Be Sick, from all over the world. And um, I learned a lot from them, and it made me broaden my thinking. And so that's 
why I wrote this third book, How to Live Well with Chronic Pain and Illness. Um, a little over a year ago, I was in the final editing stages of the book when an unexpected event occurred that made me rethink going ahead with the publication. Uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I, the, the news was fairly good. I underwent a lumpectomy and um, radiation. I didn't have to do chemo. And uh, the prognosis is very favorable. I do take some medication to prevent a recurrence, uh, which has side effects that I struggle with, but that's, um, a, that's what I'm doing. And so I've had to add that to the, to the mix. But uh, given the timing of this diagnosis, it was right at the point that my editor and I were, had done the last pass, I guess you would call it, of track changes on the book, I contacted her and said, well, I think I, I can't go forward with the publication of this book because it doesn't talk about, uh, well, the book is about chronic illness in general, but when I talk about my own experience, I don't talk about breast cancer. And she encouraged me to go ahead with it. She said they had an uh, indexer uh, that worked with them who had breast cancer and her doctor had said she should think of it as a chronic illness. And I thought, oh, that phrase is in the title of the book. So before I throw it out, um, let me at least look over the manuscript again. And what happened was I found myself being helped by what I had written during this rather scary time of my life. Because this was before I could look back and say the prognosis is excellent and that kind of thing. And so uh, that's when I decided to go ahead. And so I have written an afterword in the book that talks about it. Um, but uh, I went ahead and uh, I'm glad I did. Uh, one thing that one pleasant surprise about my books is that the people is that people who are in good health um, tell me that my writing is helpful to them, and I think this is because chronic illness can be seen as a metaphor for the difficulties that everyone faces in life. Um, so uh, we could call it a, a metaphor for dukkha, and. Um, you know, of, of course there's joy too. That little lab scout brings me great joy. Um, but uh, chronic illness poses challenges that aren't that different from uh, challenges on the job and challenges in relationships and, you know, basically coming down to not getting your way a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, the... The challenge is being able to hold both those joys and those difficulties um, at the same time in an ease-filled balance without grasping at the joys as if they aren't impermanent and without recoiling in aversion from the sorrows. 
And what I've found is that that um, working on holding them both at the same time, seeing both of them as clearly as I can, has been the key for me to finding uh, a measure of peace and contentment with my life as it is. And um, in the introduction to the book, I uh, put in what I call my um, recipe for peace of mind. So I thought I would just read that and then um, talk a little bit about some of uh, what's about the recipe. Uh, three ingredients. One dose, stark reality. Our lives and the people in them are uncertain, unpredictable, and do not always conform to our desires or our liking. Acknowledging and accepting this is the first step toward making peace with our circumstances. One dose, practical skills. Learning to pay caring attention to our lives through mindfulness practice. Cultivating kindness and compassion for ourselves as well as others. And resting in the peace of mind that comes with equanimity are skills that every one of us can learn no matter how discouraged or unhappy we are at the moment. One dose humor. Humor is good medicine for the heart and the mind. And I won't say more about that except that uh, you only need to read the table of contents to, I hope, uh, find a chuckle or two <laughs> in the way, in the, in my writing. Um, so that's my own personal recipe that I work on every single day. And um, I'll say a little bit and then about each and then hopefully um, you'll have some questions for me. Um, all right, one dose stark reality. Might as well start with that. As humans, we share certain life experiences one, of course, is the impermanent, ever-changing nature of everything in and around us. And another is the inevitability of some tough times. That's dukkha. And I would say that a third is our tendency to deny the existence of number one and number two. Um, Impermanence can be hard to bear because of all it implies. Our inability to make pleasant experiences last forever. A lack of control over so much that happens in our lives. And the pervasiveness of uncertainty and unpredictability every single day. I never know how I'm going to feel when I wake up in the morning. And that may be true for you, too, for different reasons. But um, unpredictability and uncertainty are um, uh, something that, uh, for me, have, have been the toughest to come to terms with. We also resist the inevitability of some tough times by becoming focused, often obsessively, 
on our desire to never have unpleasant experiences and when we do have one to get rid of it as soon as get rid of it right away even if that's not possible and uh, in Buddhist terminology this is our friend Tanha I want this I don't want that and um, that can become an, an obsession that um, that does nothing but increase our mental suffering. You know, if we could control what happens in our life, we wouldn't, we, there would be no dukkha. <laughs> it wouldn't be tough. We'd see to that. We'd order up pleasant experiences and we'd ban all unpleasant ones. Body, feel well all the time. Mind, don't think that thought. Get calm. And I mean now. (laughs) Um, Doesn't work for me. (laughs) Um, So, you know, but it's interesting to think about because it's a lesson that if we did have that total control, uh, not just of our minds and bodies, I mean, but everything that goes on around us, uh, the 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 people that we interact with every day, the uh, banning of all wars, the uh, ability to decide who gets to be the next president. Uh, If we could control this, our lives would be perpetually pleasant because all of our desires would be fulfilled. But of course, that's not how life works. And I like to refer to Tana, at Tanha as um, this uh, dictate, the dictates of our want, don't want mind. I think that's a phrase I came up with in the second book, and I'm sure it shows up in the third, uh, because I spend a lot of the day in want, don't want mind. And the um, part of what I work on is becoming aware of its presence. That's a mindfulness practice because it's only when you become aware that you then can make a choice to not get caught in, in its web. So um, our inability to get what we want is an inevitable part of being human. And the Buddha, this was part of the Buddha's list in the First Noble Truth. Um, uh, Losing those that we're close to, we can't stop that. Losing, uh, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, getting sick, getting old. They're on that list. And these are... Uh, the stark realities that are part and parcel of being human. So I like to think of them as the very conditions of being alive. And since I like being alive, (laughs) I find that it's important for me to come to terms with those stark realities. And uh, the good news is that help is on the way in the form of what I would call the, well, my second uh, ingredient, which is practices. Uh, 
um, mindfulness, compassion, equanimity. Those are the ones that I focus on. And when I talk about compassion, I'm including metta, loving kindness. I think of kindness and compassion as going together, even though they, are, they have sep- different definitions, technically. So let me say something about mindfulness. I define it as caring attention to our present moment experience. Um, attention with care, not some kind of um, distant aloofness. Oh, child running into the streets. Uh, (laughs) um, so and I think that sometimes people don't realize that about mindfulness it's an engagement with life it's an engagement with what's happening in the present to me the most fruitful thing to be aware of is what's going on in my own mind to paraphrase John Milton with our thoughts we can make a heaven or a hell of our lives and that's actually most the way we usually do make a heaven or hell out of our lives and if we think of mindfulness as caring attention we can begin to notice what's going on in our minds leaving out all those judgmental thoughts because we're being caring so we leave out the I shouldn't be thinking that I should be thinking this I shouldn't do that. I should do that. The shoulds, the shouldn'ts. The shoulds, the shouldn'ts. With caring attention, what your the the practice is to put those aside. They don't serve any useful purpose, at least not in my life, and they distract us from the task at hand, which is to become aware of when we're about to fall into that spell of want don't want that delusion that if we just try hard enough if we just say the right things do the right things all our desires can be fulfilled and we can we can always get our way um it takes practice it's a it's a lifetime practice but being aware of what's going on in our minds, whether it's the judgmental or the want and don't want, uh, makes it possible to consciously choose not to take up those harmful mental states, especially the want, don't want. If you become aware, oh, that's just the wanting mind it's much easier to just let it be until it passes. Because the one thing about that stark reality of impermanence is it can be our friend. (laughs) Um, The thing, we may want those joys to stay forever, but isn't it nice that the judgmental thoughts and the desires and the blues and... um, they come and they go. I like to talk about it like the weather. It blows in, blows out. Um, another way to look at this is to say that mindfulness enables us to choose how we want to live. Because the only time we have a choice is when we're aware 
of what's going on in our minds. That's what gives us the opportunity to choose. Uh, I can sometimes look back at how I'm just going reactive, reactive, re moving from one reactive mind state onto the next, you know. With, uh, and I'm, I, it, I wasn't exercising any choice at all. But when I become, can become aware, oh, that's my don't want mind. Um, uh, I can then choose to say, well, um, there it is, but this is something that I have to do, so I'll just do it. And we're not caught in this tangle of thinking, of the, the delusion that we can always mold the environment and mold our lives to fit the way we want it to be. So I like to think of this practice in terms of thinking about pleasant experiences and unpleasant ones. So um, if we're having a pleasant experience, and the example I had when I was thinking about this was the, um, some of you may have uh, gone outside and seen that blood moon back in November, I think it was, that beautiful, the, the, the lunar eclipse that led to the blood moon. And um, so there we have a pleasant experience. And we can enjoy what we get, or we can have our ideas of what it should be, or as we're enjoying it, we can grasp and want that pleasant experience to last forever. But none of those are going to work. It's going to come and it's going to go. And what happened to me, actually, this is one of the, not usually outside in the evening, but I went outside to look at that blood moon because I could actually see it from across the street. And I found myself I looked and I thought, well, how long is it going to last? One minute? Two minutes? <laughs> you know, uh, instead of just enjoying what the world was presenting to me. And the other thing I found myself doing, I prepared myself for that blood moon by researching on the internet. And it sure didn't look as nice, as, as pretty as the pictures. And I actually, while I'm standing outside, which was in itself such a treat for me to be out at night I'm looking at this thing saying I'm looking at the moon saying well it, <laughs> you don't look as nice as you did on the internet <laughs> that's the mind it's just crazy that's Bhante Gunaratna the mind is just crazy out of control and crazy and then he says but that's okay no problem so I, I, I'll add that. Um, sometimes what I say when I catch, when I caught myself doing that, I say, oh, the mind, chatter, 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 chatter. Um, so that's what we tend to do with pleasant experience. And it's, it's sad that we can't just enjoy what the moment has to offer us without adding in those wants and don't wants. And if an experience is unpleasant, we tend to put all our energy into getting rid of it, even if that's impossible at the moment. 
no amount of mental force has gotten rid of this illness and no amount of mental force got rid of that cancer diagnosis. I can go to sleep and say, okay, I'll wake up in the morning and I won't have breast cancer. No, I, it, it, life doesn't work that way. You all know that. The alternative to this fruitless got to get rid of it is to make a conscious choice to acknowledge unpleasantness without aversion. Yeah, this is not pleasant. This is one of those unpleasant moments in life. But I'm not going to make it worse by deluding myself into thinking that I can control what's happening or that I can make it pleasant. So, unpleasant? Okay, unpleasant. The, what we can do is not make it worse by adding aversion and adding fruitless, got to get rid of it mind into the mix. Um, during the last 14 and a half years, I've had lots of opportunities to watch my reactive mind. And especially with this diagnosis, which was now a little over a year and a, a year ago, I found myself waiting for test result after test result that went on for, uh, I know some of you have had this experience, it went on for actually all of November and almost all of December. Because it's like every test generates another test. And then every procedure generates another waiting. So you're always waiting for results. And it's uh, very, very hard. I could not make that into a pleasant experience. But with mindfulness, with caring attention, I could acknowledge the, that it was unpleasant and not make it worse, not intensify it. And there's a couple ways that I went about this and I'll share them with you because I think they apply to anything in, anything in your life that, where you're having, dealing with unpleasantness. Um, I have two techniques and actually one uh, I get to read about my dog scout. Uh, one is in the book um, in a couple places. This is actually from a chapter called Lessons, Lessons for the Healthy from the Land of the Sick. So uh, it's for everybody. And it starts with this quote from Jean-Paul Sartre. Everything has been figured out except how to live. I like that quote. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So um, techniques for working with um, uh, unpleasant experience and uh, the, the worry, the, the, all the stories that it generates, worrying mind, ruminating mind, fear, all of that. So this is a technique I call taking I, me, and mine out of the equation. In chapter 24, The Uncertainty of It All, I wrote about the practice of reformulating your thoughts by taking out self-referential terms such as I, me, and mine. To do this, you treat how you're feeling at the moment 
as the result of the temporary coming together of causes and conditions in your life as opposed to being due to some permanent quality of yourself. This helps me not to label myself as a worrier and a fretter, if that's a word. This perspective can benefit everyone, uh, healthy or not. Here's an example of how I've used this practice. Because I'm home alone almost all the time, often by myself, I decided in the spring of 2014 to bring new life into the house. We got a puppy and named her Scout. My husband drove to pick her up when she was 12 weeks old. Because the drive was too long for me, a friend was kind enough to accompany him. While they were on the road, I lay down for my nap. I nap every afternoon for a couple hours. It's the only way I can get through the day. My plan was to be in as good shape as possible when Scout arrived. But I couldn't sleep. In fact, I couldn't even rest. Unexpectedly, I was overcome with anxiety about what was about to happen. I can't believe how anxious I am, I thought. The anxiety then triggered an avalanche of stressful stories. Will I be able to adequately exercise a puppy? Who will train her? How will I ensure a quiet environment for my nap and for sleep at night? As I lay there, it became clear that this so-called nap was making matters worse (laughs) because lying still in the quiet had become fertile ground for generating these stressful stories. After about a half hour, I decided to try the practice of taking self-referential terms out of my thinking. Note that all the stressful thoughts contained the word I in them. So this is a bit of an, an, an anatta practice for those of you who know that word. And so instead of thinking, I can't believe how anxious I am, I changed it to anxiety is happening. And anxiety is present. And then I took a moment to explore how anxiety felt in both my mind and my body. First, I noticed that my body was tense and that the muscles in my neck were particularly tight. Then I reflected on how several causes and conditions had come together at this moment in time to create the anxiety I was experiencing. The uncertainty of the demands that a new puppy would bring, the unpredictability of my illness day to day, the fact that this was the very day my husband was picking her up, my determination that this nap would put me in good shape to greet her. All of those causes and conditions just came together and anxiety. As I reflected on this, I kept repeating, anxiety is happening, anxiety is present. There was no need to identify with it as an intrinsic quality of who I was. It just happened to be what was going on at the moment. The result of reformulating my thinking in this way was that the anxiety lost its oppressive feel and the tension in my body relaxed. A feeling of spaciousness arose 
in which the anxiety was nothing more than a fluid emotional state coming and going, arising and passing, as opposed to being a permanent fixture of this person, Tony Bernhard. I thought, yes, anxiety is present. That's okay. Just let it be. As I lay on my bed, the anxiety eventually gave way to a pleasant feeling of curiosity. Instead of feeling anxious, I was suddenly interested in seeing how life with, with Scout would unfold. We had no idea, did we, Tony? <laughs> She's almost two now and has a bionic <laughs> right leg because she broke her front foot leg in two places. So I was curious. This perspective that what happens in life is the result of causes and conditions that are ever-changing and out of your control, that you need not take it personally, this is helpful in a broad range of settings. And I used it while I was waiting for these test results. I would say, worry is happening. Worry is present. And by not identifying it, as a permanent feature in my life, but just as a result of the current causes and conditions, I could say, yeah, this is a tough time in my life. Worry is present. It won't always be, but that's what's present now. And um, so that's one of the ways in which um, I handle unpleasant experiences. I try to not identify with them as a, a permanent fixture of this uh, so-called person, Tony Bernhard. Um, a second technique for breaking the spell of uh, the stressful stories that seem to build upon unpleasant experiences um, is to consciously bring your attention out of those stories. All the stories I was spinning about Scout, could I exercise her, could I this, could I that? And into the present moment. And this takes practice. And the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. Because then it's easier the next time to remember, oh, I'm lost in stories. Come to the present moment. And a, a good way to do this is to stop what you're doing and pay attention to a couple in and out breaths. It brings you to the present because that's where your body is. And uh, so it takes you out of those stories and grounds you in the present. And the more, as I said, the more you... The, the trick is, of course, remembering to do it. But the more you do it, the more you remember. And I've started thinking of this as taking refuge in the present moment. Even if it's not a pleasant one. Say I'm feeling down or um, my knee is hurting, which it has been. At least I'm present for it instead of adding more suffering with all the stories and the worries, oh, the pain will never go away, or, 
you're not supposed to get down. You wrote the books on not getting down. (laughs) Um, That just makes things worse. So being present for an unpleasant moment, uh, to me, is is still... um, uh, It brings with it a, a calmness that is tinged with sweetness, the sweetness of the mystery of being alive in this moment, even if it's not the one I would have chosen. Uh, There's something to me that's sweet about being present for what's happening in my life. Um, And it's a sweetness that for me is born out of mystery, the mystery of being alive. So uh, those are some ideas for uh, dealing with uh, want-don't-want mind and getting lost in stressful stories. Another thing you can do to help yourself takes me to uh, the next ingredient from mindfulness to compassion. Um, and I would include in that loving kindness, what I call it, kindness or friendliness. That's actually the true uh, translation of metta, friendliness. I get more notes from people about their inability to treat themselves with compassion than on any other subject. For so, We have been, I was going to say for some reason, but I think I know the reason. It's judgmental parents and and influential people's telling us what to do all through our lives, and the, and the media uh, bombarding us. Uh, exercise and you'll never get sick. Eat this and you'll never get sick. Um, um, think positively and you'll never grow old. You know, all those kinds of things. And so then when life doesn't turn out that way, people think it's their fault. And so I, I get letters from all over the world and, and it's the, the letters today, of course, means emails. <laughs> um, I get an occasional letter. Uh, more, the theme is uh, the, the most, what people write to me most often about is their inability to be kind to themselves. And sometimes they're writing because they've read one of my books and that's helped them turn that corner because that's my go-to practice. Be nice to yourself. We, we hardly control anything about this life. The one thing you can control is to be kind to yourself. And I don't ever see a reason not to be kind to yourself. Even if you're in the middle of learning from your mistakes, go ahead and learn, but be kind. And um, so... Compassion in every setting eases the pain of want-don't-want mind and of all, all the stark realities. The third practical skill is the cultivation of equanimity, a frame of mind that allows us to ride the waves of life's inevitable ups and downs, successes and disappointments, without feeling just tossed about, thrown against one brick wall and then another, a feeling that I'm sure is familiar to all of us. 
A mind that is equanimous recognizes unpleasant experience as unpleasant and doesn't react with aversion, either in the form of a cynical, well, who cares? Or uh, the type of aversion that comes from Tana, that I got to get rid of this right now. Um, it just recognizes, oh, unpleasant. Okay, life is going to have some unpleasantness. Here it is. Uh, and a mind that's equanimous recognizes pleasant experience as pleasant and enjoys it, but doesn't cling to it. Um, uh, because in, the law of impermanence will sweep it away soon enough. It's, it's this willingness to be present for our experience as it is, even when it's not what we would have ordered up if we had control over our lives. I've started practicing equanimity by uh, starting uh, sentences with, it's okay if. <laughs> so there's, it's okay if I never regain my health. Well, for that's something I, for the first five, six years of being sick, there was no way I could say that. It was not okay. And it's still sometimes not okay. On the drive down here, there was a moment my husband and I shared where it felt not okay because the drive was hard. But I'm working on, it's okay. This is the life I've got. I can't beat it out. I can't beat the illness out of me. It's okay. Our dog, two years old, limps badly. Sometimes I feel, I can feel brokenhearted about it, but I'm working on, it's okay. We, I love her dearly. It's okay if we have a dog that can't run and jump freely and she's, she, this is the life she knows. She seems perfectly happy. So I'm working, that's another thing I work on. It's okay if Scout limps the rest of her life. How about, it's okay if Donald Trump becomes president. <laughs> See, I, I was a law professor. So you always pose the most extreme hypothetical and try to work through that one. So I'm, I'm actually working on that. And I've, here, I've gotten to this. I like living under a democracy. And I, and I think our constitution is one of the greatest documents in the world. And you know what? He qualifies under it to run. He qualifies. He gets to run. That's part of being in a democracy. I know. It's, I'm working on it. I'm saying that. But I, I'm, I'm suggesting that you find some things to work on like that. Um, uh, because... Um, it's, you know, I've been a practicing Buddhist for almost 25 years, as I mentioned. And in, this is just my personal view. Those pr true moments of equanimity for me are moments of liberation. 
or awakening, freedom, whatever word you like to use, that the peace that comes with being okay with your life as it is, uh, not grasping at the pleasant, not uh, recoiling from the unpleasant. It's a moment of uh, wishlessness, something that the Buddha talked about, not contending. And so for me, it's this moment of not contending with anything. And it's, um, that's where I find my peace and my contentment. So um, I was going to read more from the book, but I see it's 10 of 12. Let me see if anyone has questions. I would love to answer a few questions. Um, sure, yeah. Thanks. You can use the mic. Oh, okay. Thank you, Tony. Um, I was wondering, what are you working on now? Well... When I wrote my first book, I said, I'm, that's it. I'm, you know, and then I wrote the second book. And I said, that's it. And so now I've written this one, and I've said, that's it. And the only person who seems to believe me is my son. <laughs> but I actually am through writing books. It's too hard. Um, and I really feel I've put everything I have to say into my books. I still write. I write. Psychology Today has an online site with, um, it's kind of hard to get on as a blogger. I guess that's what you'd call me, but somebody got me on there. And so I post articles there every couple weeks. And some of them are on chronic illness, and some of them are on Buddhist practices. So I intend to keep that up. Um, and I've been toying with the idea of trying to uh, paint. Before I went to law school, I used to paint. So I don't know if I can handle it because it takes sitting up. And so um, I'm, uh, oh, oh, and I would say this, I actually spend the bulk of my time in bed with my laptop um, answering people's emails and uh, I have a fairly big Facebook following that uh, just a page I started for my book. I had no idea this would happen, but I have a pretty big following. And a lot of those people write me private messages on Facebook. And, you know, if they're off the wall kooky, I don't. But when people reach out to me in their suffering, uh, I feel I reach back. And so I spend a lot of my time um, writing to people. Yeah. Um, chronic illness injury is often a cascade. And what I mean is that <clears throat> one thing leads to another. One debility leads to further debilities because your function is reduced. Mm -hmm. And that reduced function leads to other difficulties. So if you have, if you're in that, um, you're always faced with unpleasant consequences. It doesn't always go down, goes up, and changes. But nevertheless, over time, you suffer that. And what is your, what would be a recommendation yeah. for 
knowing that this is happening and not being really able to do a lot about it. Yeah. Um, which you've probably experienced yourself. Well, I have. And I should say that when I talk about chronic illness, I'm including chronic pain. Um, and for me, age has been, well, well, breast cancer got added to the mix. And for me right now, that's what's in the mix is a medication I'm taking that has uh, side effects that are, uh, that it made my muscles painful and stiff. Um, and then adding to that mix is um, that I'm getting older, 14 years. I was in my 50s when I got sick. So you have to add 14 years of that. And the fact that when you're sick, you can't keep in physical shape. So I try to do some stretching and stuff, but I don't, I'm not an exerciser. And so there, it's not uncommon for people who are chronically ill to become clinically depressed. And sometimes this gets turned around on them, gets turned ass backwards, and they're told, well, you're ill because you're depressed. But no, it's uh, in the same way that often caregivers of people who are ill become depressed because there's just this tremendous change in, in your life. And so um, I guess I would say you do need to watch out for the possibility of um, clinical depression, which I would say is a, when a, a kind of dark mood settles in and instead of my weather metaphor applying, blowing in and blowing out, it settles in and doesn't lift for weeks at a time. And then I would seek professional help. But uh, other than that, because um, that hasn't happened to me, um, I uh, practice equanimity. And I practice it in some of the ways that I've talked about here. Um, recognizing, I was going to read an excerpt from the book that I didn't, uh, where I say that um, a big opening of the heart uh, happened for me when I realized that life isn't fair. <laughs> Even though we're taught as children that it's going to be or should be, it's not fair. And so uh, it's not fair and it's not predictable. And one difficulty can pile on another, can pile on another, and I think that's what you're talking about. And so what I do is acknowledge how tough it is, and then I... I make a conscious choice to look for that little, sorry for the cliche, ray of sunlight. That little, where's that little bit of joy? And maybe it's uh, scout licking my face. Maybe it's a, something silly on TV. Maybe it's something creative. I like to crochet. So I it's like the Grateful Dead set. keep on trucking, I guess, is what I, that's what I seem to be uh, doing with my own life because I know what you're talking about and it, it gets harder and harder and you have to 
stay proactive. It's, a, it's also a mindfulness practice then. It's mindfulness and it's equanimity. You just have to keep um, acknowledging the difficulties and uh, looking for the joys and try to make sure you're not making things worse by adding doomsday stories to the difficulties. This pain will never go away. My, that friend is never going to call again. I mean, I, all those things I say I always turn out to be wrong. So uh, adding those the stressful stories makes things worse too. I, was that? I hope that was helpful. Yeah. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, I would have a question related to. Uh, illness and relationships. Mm. So I, I've been having a chronic illness and pain for three years. And um, <clears throat> I think the hardest thing for me is really deal with people that uh, would kind of make me feel I'm not good enough because I'm still sick, like you were talking about. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice on that? Well, that's a theme that runs throughout all of my books is the the difficulty of living in a world where people don't understand what your life is like and um, uh, I have a, a couple things one is um, to stick to recognize that some friends uh, may drift out of your life. I not only lost, I lost the person who was my best friend at work. She's too uncomfortable around illness. And for um, several years, I was angry and resentful at her. And then I realized her suffering. And she's uncomfortable uh, around illness because of her life experiences with her mother and father, which I won't go into. And so her inability to be present for me is not about me. It's about her life experiences. And um, I've also uh, lost uh, um, the, uh, uh, one of my relatives that uh, I was close to. He's just left my life because I wouldn't follow his advice. He has uh, very strong views on what I should be taking and not taking because he's a, a health food person. And so uh, he just gave up on me. And so um, I, had, I wasn't able to write my first book until I could come to terms with that and be able to say, okay, um, some people are going to come through for me and some people are not. And this is true whether you're in all aspects of life, at work, in relationships. Um, some people disappoint, some people don't. And to uh, work on, first of all, trying to stick with those who support you. And it's okay. I'd rather have two good friends that support me than a dozen who uh, are judgmental. Stick with those who support you and to work on recognizing that those who aren't there for you, it's 
due to their life circumstances, their particular history, causes and conditions that brought them to a place where they're unable to understand what's going on with you. And the culture doesn't help at all. The culture doesn't teach us about illness and pain. Um, and so it's not really their fault. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. So you're, you're saying, you know, going back to what you were yeah. reading before about removing the eye, it's not me. It's just, oh. Um. When, when people don't understand, there's a chapter in this book, Misconceptions About Chronic Pain and Illness, although it's a theme that runs throughout the book, but there's a whole book, Misconceptions. Um, those people aren't, I mean, they're, the odds are probably 99% that they're behaving that way out of ignorance. They're not wishing you that you don't do well. They just don't know. They don't know how to behave around people who are ill. It may make them uncomfortable because it reminds them of their own mortality. Um, they may not understand because they don't get, well, wait a minute. And why don't you just get on the treadmill like I do and then you'll be fine. They just are ignorant. And uh, what I found is I was only able to find some measure of peace when I could see that and wish them well. And I know it's a little easier for me because I have a loving, supportive partner. So I, I know I have one person always. And so uh, I know particularly people who are young, it can be very difficult. Um, I actually know someone wrote to me and said, you know how they have the dating services, the online dating now for every, oh, you can go to the Buddhist online and well, there's the disabled or, or there's the chronically ill online and she actually met a guy this way. And... Um, they got married. <laughs> so, I mean, there, it's, there are people there who understand and um, you have to keep looking and you have to work. I'm telling you, you have to, you have to. I'm sorry to use those terms. I recommend that you work on forgiving those who just don't get it and recognize that it's the... It's, their ignorance and the culture's lack of education that um, causes them to be that way. I still face that. People who, because I don't have this clear diagnosis. Um, just the other day, uh, someone wanted to offer me for free some muscle testing thing that would clear my trapped emotions um, so that I could get rid of some past trauma that is making me sick and um, I will admit in my 14 years I've tried just about everything including something like that <laughs> so uh, but you know the people just we're not we're not well educated in this culture about illness and yeah um, just maybe two more because it's I don't want to keep people if someone needs to leave please I won't at all be offended if you get up and leave Okay, go ahead. First, I wanted to, th to congratulate you 
and thank you for using your, the trouble in your own life to do something for the rest of humanity. Thank you. I think that's very noble. Thank you. <laughs> Um, well, my question was similar to this young lady's. Uh, I'm chronically ill and I find it very isolating. Yeah. And although I'm trying to reach out to other people, my own limitations stand in the way. Do you have any recommendations for that? Yeah. Um, you know, even though I said I'm fortunate to have a loving partner, I can get, I get lonely and feel isolated too. Um, because it's wonderful to have one person, but you hope your life that, that to make more contacts. Um, I am not able to go out very often. And this is a huge trip for me, and I'll be in bed for several days afterward. But I wanted to do it, so I did. Um, ha I have found my community online. And uh, I don't know if you use if you use a computer, but um, I have um, I've made really close friends with a couple people who I've never met in person. I met because we're similarly sick. And uh, one woman, one day I email her, the next day she emails me, then I email, and in some ways. She lives in Philadelphia, and I'll probably never meet her. Maybe if my husband is back east, he could stop. My husband has actually met two people, that, who it makes me want to cry, two people that, I've, that I'm close to that I'm not able to meet, including the woman who narrated my three books for audiobook. She just lives in L.A., but I can't get to L.A., so Tony had dinner with her. And so um, my uh, relationships are for the most part online. And is that completely satisfying? No. That's why I still get lonely and feel isolated. But um, the only other thing I've done is that um, we have some Buddhist friends in town and uh, they used to meet uh, in the evenings at our house, and I, they still do. have been doing this for 20 years, once a month, and I can't join them anymore because in the evenings I am just out. We call it stun gun state. So I instituted, I asked them if they would come over once a month on Wednesday afternoons, and they do. It's about four or five people, and we pick a topic, and sometimes I'm too sick to do much more than sit there. But it's nice that... So one thing you might do is see if it's hard for you to go out, are there any people you might be able to have over and try to think of maybe some little formal thing like that, like a little Buddhist study group or some, whatever your interests are. So I don't think I was very helpful, but... It's because I, I'm, I share that experience of isolation. It's very hard for me. Yeah. Thank you, Tony. My name is Maria, and I am so impressed how life has turned to you in your career-wise, in your mm -hmm. profession. I have multiple injuries, and it seems to me 
that my career shift, my career is going to shift. And I'm not sure about it. I have anxiety about it. And um, I like to hear from you in that regard. Please. Um, Anxiety is okay. Because who wouldn't experience anxiety when they're faced with a career shift? I mean, that seems natural unless you're an enlightened Buddha or something, you know. Uh, So uh, anxiety is okay. I would try to not feed it by, with the stories of, I'm never going to figure out what to do. I won't ever find anything to do that was as fulfilling as what I was doing before. Those are just the stories that make things worse. And so when you feel that anxiety, just recognize that, oh, anxiety is happening. Bring yourself to the present moment and say, you know, right now I'm in a holding pattern and I'm just waiting to see how my life is going to unfold. I don't know. I'm just waiting to see. You know, when I was uh, uh, teaching, if you had said, you're going to write, you're going to become a published author of a, of a book in which you don't write scholarly stuff. <laughs> you talk in a conversational tone about, you know, your experiences. And I would have said, You've got to, no, that's not me. And that turned out to be me. Me-ish, anyway. <laughs> So um, don't, just let, let that anxiety, be kind to that anxiety. I think this is what Thich Nhat Hanh would say, right? He would say, take care of your anxiety. I'm not going to claim that I made that up. I got that from him. Take care of it. Be kind to it. And see that it's a natural reaction to some big change it sounds like you're about to go through. And then just say, well, let me just see where this ride takes me. And just be on guard for the stories, the predictions, the stressful stories that might be making you feel worse. And don't believe them because you don't know. Thank you. Does that help? Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you.